Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. We're coming to you with our year-in-review episode, our final show of 2022. And we're going to look back at all the fun we had in the last year, not just on the podcast, but watching the 83-win Orioles team that came out of nowhere and some of the fun that we had on the minor league side of things, including these strong seasons had by many top prospects, the good year that we saw in Aberdeen, and some other topics that we don't actually even know what the three of us are going to bring up yet. We have a list of prompts of things we want to talk about, but I don't know exactly how Bob and Nick are going to recap this year. They don't know how I'm going to recap it. Um, and if you listen to last year or so, some of your favorite questions from that year-end recap might have found their way back on their list for this one. And at the end of the show, towards the end of the show, we're going to take some listener questions that have come in. But first, we'll uh, start off with really what I think would be a way to summarize this season, which was, you know, for all the ups and downs at various points, we got a lot of gifts from the Orioles uh, this year. And I'll start with Bob here. What was the best gift that the Orioles gave us in 2022? For me, it was a winning year of baseball at the major league level a year early. I love getting gifts a year early. Um, unfortunately for them, that comes with raised expectations and the uh, Orioles Twitter, you know, hyper analyzing every move you make or every move another team makes for some reason. Um, but really the gift, the best part of that gift was not just that they had a winning season, but how they did it with Adley Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson, Kyle Stowers, Taron Vavra, Kyle Bradish, a bunch of the guys we've been following since we started and talking about how they're going to make an impact at the major league level. They actually go ahead, went ahead and did in uh, 2022. And it was a lot of fun to watch. Probably the most fun watching the Orioles since 2016, maybe. So, yeah, that would be my answer for that. Robinson Chirinos. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to say, yeah, the the prospects, Allie Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson, uh, Kyle Bradish, Felix Batista, uh, Felix the mountain Felix Batista, unbelievable season. The guy was like 24 years old and rookie ball still. And he was in consideration in the conversation, at least for rookie of the year after a just unbelievable performance in the big leagues and really taking over this team's closer. So yeah, I think it's Bob nailed it there with the, it's the young guys that we, when we started the show over two years ago, almost three years ago now at this point, uh, that we've been following throughout the minor leagues, and now they are arriving, making an impact at the major league level. And it's really awesome to see. And hopefully in 2023, we see a lot more of those guys on the big league roster. Yeah, I think you guys both hit the nail on the head. It was really the success of the major league team and the fact that we saw a lot of the young players contribute to that. I think that an 83-win season, an 83-win season, it's good to feel, you know, you should feel good about it regardless. But the fact that it wasn't an 83-win season 
with a lot of stop gaps who don't really have any players behind them um, means a little bit more to me because I can look at the roster the Orioles might have in 2023. And while I know that it's far from perfect to know that a full season of Adley Rutzman, a full season of Gunnar Henderson, um, another year of experience for Felix Bautista and Kyle Bradis might uh, really mean a lot next year. And the fact that we got to see what I hope is a preview and a sign of things to come in 2022 is a great thing. Love it. Uh, talking about prospects, who was the most surprising breakout prospect of 2022? Start with Zach on this one. You know, there's a lot of different options here that you could look at. I think that the way Joey Ortiz broke out in the season, when you consider how he had started off so slow and then all of a sudden took off, was um, surprising, but not terribly surprising when you considered how his prospect status had been up to uh, or leading up to this year. So I'm going to say that overall, the most pleasant surprise was Noah DeNoyer. I think we all liked DeNoyer a lot coming into this year, but I don't know that any of us could have necessarily seen him dominating the way that he did um, and doing a lot of that in a tough pitcher's environment at Bowie and then working his way onto the 40-man roster at the end of the year. So I would say that the most pleasant surprise prospect was DeNoyer because he went from a guy that I think a lot of us who really followed the system closely knew had potential and knew could be a guy that, you know, could make things interesting, the higher levels of the minor leagues, and maybe somebody that was flying under the radar a little bit to a guy that's now on the 40 man roster and could be in this bullpen or maybe even in this starting rotation sometime next year at the major league level. That's a great pick. I mean, you can't argue with that between him, Justin Armbruster and Ryan Watson, like these guys really broke out in a big way on the pitching side, but I went with a couple younger international guys. First was Aaron Estrada. I mean, when we had Kobe Perez on and we're talking about how excited we are to see Leandro Arias and Braylon Tavera, Edwin Imparo, Thomas Sosa, et cetera, et cetera, join this organization from the international signing period. Didn't even know that Aaron Estrada was going to be like the guy I was most excited about coming out of that DSL season and coming into FCL in 2023. And then the other one would be, you know, we knew he was legendary, but we didn't know he was going to make it all the way to Aberdeen in his first year of full season ball. And that's Frederick Ben Cosme. I mean, yeah, we liked the guy, but I don't think we saw him basically skipping the FCL, just overpowering Delmarva, making them look silly the way he puts the bat to the ball and never struck out and didn't perform especially well in Aberdeen, but he was super young, super raw in a tough park for hitters in general against some pretty tough competition. So not too worried, but Aaron Estrada, Frederick Ben Cosme, thank you for breaking out. Didn't see it coming the way it did, but glad it happened. Stole mine. I went Frederick Ben Cosme as well. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, literally the only footage we had of Ben Cosme coming into the air was like some bunting videos that we were making fun of. And like one pretty remarkable, like weird throw from the infield. I think he almost took his pitcher's head off. Uh, but like that was it. You saw really good DSL numbers, but it was more like, hey, let's just see. This is a name to, you know, keep in the back of your mind going into the FCL season. Let's see what he does down in Sarasota. And if he has a good year, then all right, we'll pay more attention. But 
I mean, the kid didn't even play in Sarasota last year. So he goes to Delmarva. He's 19 years old, in in the year in Aberdeen. Got love from Baseball America, talking about his bat-to-ball skills. Is, you know, some of the, the best in the organization. I think he started to become a real fan favorite. You're welcome to everybody who found Frederick Ben Cosby. Like, what percentage of fans even knew who he was before 2022? Like, we barely did. And this is, like, all we do is, like, follow Orioles minor league baseball. So, and I think the, the thing for me was when Kobe Perez was on our show and he name-dropped Ben Cosme unprompted, that's when I was like, oh, like, I'm going to pay attention. Clearly, the organization was high on this kid. Getting promoted to high A at his age, I think, just really solidified that. But if I have to throw another name out there to be uh, give a, a, another unique answer as well, I'm going to say Connor Norby because of all the – he's a hitter. He's so hitterish. Hitter, hitter, hitter. Hits leader in NCAA. Like, all right, that's cool. So he's going to hit like 350 in Delmarva and they didn't get up to Aberdeen and just not do nothing. Like, who is this guy exactly? He led this organization in home runs last year, the minor league side at least, with home runs, 29 home runs. The power is legit. He ended the year in AAA on a tear in AAA. I was not expecting any of those numbers. And now, I mean, you've got people thinking, like, where's Norby going to play in the major leagues already? Um, and he was just drafted last year. So I think that was a, a very pleasant surprise as well. Good call, good call. You know, I was about to take extreme offense to you implying that Orioles baseball and minor league baseball at that is pretty <laughs> much all I think about. But then I realized uh, you're right. <laughs> that is pretty much all I think about. So, yeah, good call there. Um, my category is going to be most surprising prospect who disappointed, which is kind of along the same lines, but it's not about, you know, most disappointing. It's like who was disappointing that surprised you that you thought was going to do really well. I'll start with Zach. Cesar Prieto struggled at Bowie more than I was expecting, especially after the way he looked at Aberdeen, where he wasn't just making consistent contact. He was hitting the ball hard. So you saw that and you thought, he's going to go to Bowie. He's a better hitter than we thought he was. He's going to go to Bowie and hit really well. And he was a guy we were talking about coming into the season as possibly being a player that could go three levels. And when I think about every other player that maybe had a year that didn't meet my expectations ahead of time, almost all of them had an injury. Um, you know, Jemai Jones certainly was a disappointment relative to his expectations coming into the season, but there was an injury. Um, you know, there was a lot of guys who missed extended periods of time that we were counting on for breakouts, like Brandon Young, Kyle Bronovitz, and not that their performances were disappointing, it's just the circumstances were disappointing. But yet, I, I feel like Prieto, it's just the bar was kind of high. He set it really high at Aberdeen, and then he went to Bowie, and it just never took off. And I think the thing that was most discouraging for me was not the drop in power, but that you weren't really seeing a patient plate approach. It was going up there and swinging a lot. And while I think the back to ball skills are still something that could provide value for him um, or the Orioles or another major league team down the line, the plate approach overall has to get better. Yeah, um, going into next year, obviously he made a huge life adjustment coming over from Cuba and everything. I, I get that, and I'm not writing him off at at all going into 2023, but I, I'm definitely kind of down on Prieto, honestly, to enter 2023. But my guy is Michael Hernandez. I think this is an international prospect that the Orioles gave a lot of money to. 
I think at the time it was the highest. And so I think Basayo came in and got like another 100K more, if I remember correctly. But I mean, this guy had physical comps, not like style or like tools wise, but physical comps of Alex Rodriguez and Manny Machado. And this is why I hate comps so much because that's still going to create this unnecessary buzz and expectation around this 16, 17 year old kid. But it's been two years now. He has yet to hit a home run in this organization. His career batting average is 191, 560 OPS. And talking about Kobe Perez and the vibes, I did not get good vibes when Kobe Perez talks about Hernandez just saying, yeah, we changed some things about his game, and we'll see what happens. Like, doesn't sit right with me. But he also doesn't – he just turned 19, I believe, in October or November. He just turned 19. So, yeah, you still get him some time. He'll be back in Sarasota next year, I imagine, to begin the year. We'll see if he rebounds. But there's just nothing in the numbers that give me a lot of, like, positive hope going into 2023. Yeah, both of those are fantastic picks. I did have Prieto written down, but I'm going to go with Robert Newstrom as a sleeper pick for me where, you know, coming into 2022, we were talking about if there's a Rule 5, should we protect him to – not have him get taken off of our minor league roster. And, and you know, he's going to make his major league debut at some point in 2022. Well, who will debut first, Robert Newstrom or Kyle Stowers in the major leagues? It's easy to forget that we were talking like that about him because, I mean, he had a fantastic 2021 and, you know, did really well in Bowie, even did pretty good in AAA Norfolk the time he got there. But then this year he kind of just fell off the radar, dealt with some injuries, but and hit some bombs, had some – good games, good stretches, but man, he just, he just couldn't be consistent enough to lock into that power. And I think at this point I have him on the bench for AAA to start 2023. And I feel like the, the joy ride might be over unless he can really rebound very quickly in the beginning of next year. Going in a completely different direction here, Gunnar Henderson, great prospect or the greatest prospect. Um, I'll start with Nick. This is a. I feel like if you say great prospect, uh, Orioles fans are going to revolt. But I'm going to say great prospect. But at the same time, like he could very well be a five WAR player at least as a 22 year old rookie next season. I'm excited to see what he can do in his first full year in the big leagues. He's so young. He's so exciting. He has amazing hair. He literally has it all. I greatest prospect in terms of hair. Yes. But um, yeah, we're we're pretty lucky. We're going to talk about the draft later on, but you get Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson in the same draft class. Just it's mind blowing. Still to this day, mind blowing. Yeah, I think we asked the same question about Adley Rutschman this time last year. Um, but I'm going to go greatest prospect with Gunnar Henderson just because I probably said the same thing about Adley, but I do think Gunnar might have even more superstar potential than Adley, maybe not from a leadership and, you know, catcher control in the staff from that perspective. But I mean, we came in to 2022 super high on Gunnar Henderson and he firmly just demolished those expectations that we had for him. Like the level of improvement that he showed, not just at the plate, the swing decisions. Oh my goodness. He had a better, um, swinging at balls outside of the zone chase rate. That's, that's what I'm going for. He had a better chase rate than Adley Rutschman in his major league time. He, you know, is walking and striking out less 
or walking more, striking out less, and has speed. His defense improved tremendously at shortstop. I think he could play shortstop in the major leagues now or be an elite third baseman. He even played some pretty decent second baseman on a moment's notice. So I think if he continues that rate of improvement and just he has a tendency to come up big in the moment, the when he hit that home run in his major league debut, that was incredible. And he hit a home run in Boston that was like even more incredible somehow. So greatest prospect. Yeah, nothing you guys just said falls in the realm of hot take, including the the possibility that maybe his all-around skill set is better than Adley Rutzman's, at least from an on-field perspective, or that he could be a five-win player at age 22. He's a great prospect, and I think that it's sort of odd to me that I think in the discourse of this offseason, Gunnar Henderson's sort of been forgotten about. Like, oh, Gunnar Henderson will play third base or shortstop next year without the acknowledgement of the fact that he's going to be probably going to be an upgrade at either one of those two positions. And he's going to add a left-handed bat to this lineup. That's going to hit the ball hard, has a really advanced feel for the strike zone for his age. And as we have said repeatedly on this show, his speed is underrated. And I really want to see what he could do next year with some of these rule changes going into effect that could seemingly make stolen bases a little bit easier. And we know that the Orioles are a team that is willing to let the guys who can run, run. Look at Jorge Mateo and Cedric Mullins. That's all the evidence that you need. So I, I would not be shocked if Henderson's a 2020 player next season. Not at all. Agreed. Um Next question here is favorite play of the year, majors and minors. Let's start with Bob. So, all right. In the majors, it was just anything Jorge Mateo did defensively on the field was just a marvel to look at. I literally watched, I think it was a seven-minute highlight video of his uh, today when trying to pick my favorite one. And I think I'm going to go with the game-ending double play in St. Louis I think it was game ending. It was at least, yeah, it was right. Um, it was a, a pop-up that looked like it would be tough to get to. He made the catch and he spins to throw the ball to do the double play. And at least live watching the game, I'm like, what is he doing? He's going to throw the ball away. There's no chance he's going to get this guy at first base. And he does. And the game ends. And I don't know. That to me was just like his instincts at second at shortstop were like more than just the physical skills to get to the ball, the arm to throw anyone out from any, anywhere on the field, like just the instincts. He would do that time and time again where he'd like throw the ball when I'm like, you have no chance. And he did have a chance and he knew it and he got him. So anything with Jorge Mateo, but particularly that one play in St. Louis from the majors and in the minors, a couple honorable mentions with uh, Dylan Harris, shout out to a guy who's probably not going to be an organization next year. Uh, made a running catch in left field and then had an incredible throw to complete the double play. Colton Kowser robbed some home runs in center field, but it's our guy, Joey Ortiz. I think Nick, you tweeted out the highlight that I'm going to go with here where it's like a pop-up in no man's land. And here comes Joey Ortiz making it look casual, but a spectacular play as well. And I'm pretty sure we'll see some more of those next year. Yeah, the Ortiz play is my pick in the minors as well. And, Bob, if we're talking about the same play, that was one of his first games at Norfolk. He's at shortstop. A ball gets hit down the left field line, medium depth, and he runs back 
and makes that catch. It that's just where if you need to show someone how different Joey Ortiz is from other shortstops defensively, you pull up that play. Now, as far as the major leagues go, the Jorge Mateo, again, I agree with that one, the, that catch in St. Louis. That was the game that I remember watching. And when Mateo finished that off, I just remember thinking to myself, this season might just be different than what we've seen in a while. There's a chance that something different is going to happen here. Um, Trey Mancini's inside the park home run um, was sort of weird, um, but cool at the same time. But I'll say that I could watch Felix Batista's splitters all day. Any pitch that Batista threw this year where it was fat, any pitch sequence he had this year was fastball, fastball, splitter, strike out the batter. That was amazing. And that's why I found myself getting so hyped every time that he took the mound this year. I want to watch baseball now. Um, mine was, I was definitely going to go with the Joey Ortiz play in Norfolk because that was an unbelievable play. Mine wasn't necessarily one specific play on the minor league side of things, but it was Gunnar Henderson hitting for the cycle in Norfolk. Uh, he's a 20 year old kid. I think that was like two hours before he turned 21. It was the day before his 21st birthday. He hits for the cycle goes a perfect four for four. I look, put up the box score from that game. Gwinnett had four hits as a team that night. And at that point, like, I just feel like it was another moment where we realized that Gun- this is not the Gunnar Henderson we watched in 2021. Like Bob mentioned in your Gunnar Henderson answer earlier, this is another one of those moments. It's a 20-year-old kid with an OPS over 1,000 and AAA who just hit for the cycle. I think they said it was like 20-something years in between cycles down in Norfolk. We hadn't seen that since they were a Mets affiliate. So unbelievable to see. The major league side of things, the most memorable play for me was Ali Rutschman's debut when he hit the triple because uh, I got really uh, gutsy that night, um, and I won a whole lot of money on that triple. Uh, but So that was a play that sticks out to me. But um, honestly, I'm going back to Gunnar Henderson and saying Gunnar Henderson's first career home run the Jim Palmer giggle will stick with me forever. Uh, so that's that was something for me. And again, another moment where like it's the young kids for me. Like these are the guys where we realize this player development stuff is really working, and these guys are now contributing at the major league level. It's not just a pipe dream anymore. Um, the the Orioles are are very quickly arriving, and arrived they did with eighty plus wins last year. Surprised you went with that. Uh, cycle instead of the Austin Hayes cycle, which kind of was the perfect deviation point from his good first half and terrible second. <laughs> oh, Hayes. I love you. Not really, but anyway. Chris does. And you know, he's kind of like the owner, right? <laughs> oh, God. It's but... me, isn't it? <laughs> the silence gave that away. Um, <laughs> all right. So Right now, we got to predict our top 10 Orioles prospects this time next year, which is a very tough task to do because you don't know who's going to graduate. You don't know who's going to blow up. You definitely don't know who they're taking with their first pick in the draft next year. So do the impossible and tell us who the top 10 are at the end of 2023, Nick. Uh, I feel like I'm super safe here. Um, I also don't have these in exact order. I realize I never put them in a specific order, but I've got 10 names. It's Jackson holiday. Of course, Colton Kowser. I think he's still going to qualify by the end of the year as a prospect. Kobe Mayo, Judd Fabian, 
Heston Kerstad, Dylan Beavers, Kate Povich, Connor Norby, and Joey Ortiz. I think they, again, playing it safe here, that they still stick around Norfolk longer than they need to. Uh, and whoever they draft in the first round next year. Super conservative, not fun at all, but still a fun group of prospects. Um, I'm going to go Jackson Holiday, number one. Colton Kowser, number two. I agree with Nick there. Kobe Mayo, third. I'm going to actually predict that Dylan Beaver shoots all the way up to fourth. I think that that's going to be a real helium guy in this system this year. And I think reports that we have gotten about his defense at this point have been positive. So if that combines with the offensive breakout that I think is coming, he's going to move up pretty high. And then that that first-round pick in the draft probably slots in around fifth in a good farm system unless you get a player that drops to 17th over signing bonus demands, which is possible. I'll go with Joey Ortiz then at number six. Um, I'll go agree with Nick on that one. Connor Norby, seventh. Heston Kerstad, eighth. And then I'll go Cade Povitz, ninth, and Samuel Basayo, 10th. Okay, so I'm definitely more bullish on guys graduating. And I'm not conservative when it comes to the likes of Colton Kowser, Connor Norby, and Joey Ortiz sticking around on prospect list this time next year. So I have number one, Jackson Holiday with the bullet, potentially for the third year in a row, number one prospect in baseball. Number two, I have the Kobe Mayo breakout. It's real. It's happening. Top 10, top 15 type talent in the in the majors or the minors. You think you're high on Dylan Beavers? I have him at number three on my list. And then I have the 2023 first round pick, number four. Heston Kirst had five. I have Cade Povich really breaking out on a pitcher side and coming in at number six. Dale Hernandez continuing his great improvements. Getting in at number seven, Seth Johnson stagnating a little bit coming back from injury, but still in the top 10 at number eight. Samuel Basayo at number nine, getting to Aberdeen as a, what, 19-year-old. Um, and Judd Fabian, number 10. As much as I wanted to put Frederick Ben Cosme continuing to break out and getting into the top 10, I, I just had to put Fabian there for a good time's sake. I could also see John Rhodes breaking into the top 10 with a great year as well. So – what was the biggest thing you learned about the Orioles in 2022? And uh, we'll start with Bob on this one. Yeah, what did we learn about the Orioles? What didn't we learn? Uh, I think we know a lot about them now, except for what they're going to do this offseason to improve the Major League team. Um, maybe you already know that by the time this podcast gets uh, aired to your, your podcast player of choice. But for me, it was summed up perfectly by Eve Rosenbaum in an interview with Fangraphs when she said, we are a player development powerhouse. And I think that is the number one thing that we learned this year. We knew already coming into this year that Elias, Mydell, Rosenbaum and company, they can acquire talent, whether it's through draft, through trades, through international signings. They quickly built one of, if not the best, farm systems in baseball. The only question remaining was, what can they do with that talent? Well, turns out they can do a lot because from the pitching side of things at the major league level, you saw incredible improvements there and in the minor leagues and creeping into the major leagues. You see the swing decisions taking, taking hold and you saw what Gunnar Henderson did. Maybe he's a shining example and like above and beyond what most players will be able to do. But I feel like you saw improvements like that left and right throughout this entire system this year, whether it's 
you know, Connor Norby, the way he improved as he went up the ladder, Colton Kowser as well. Just I feel like the list can go on and on. And of course, you're going to have guys that still don't reach their potential. But to me, the player development was the story of 2022 for the Orioles. Great minds. That was my answer too. In in terms of player development, like I feel as confident as ever in the direction of this organization. I know at the big league level, feelings are pretty soured right now because we're not making moves or we're making the wrong moves or whatever, whatever your opinion is there. But I feel like in terms of identifying talent and then developing that talent, they have a type at every position and they're not going to deviate from that type. Uh, and they feel confident in their strategies, their player development plans, they're confident in the people that they have leading uh, the player development staff at every single level. Uh, and so they they trust that that's going to create a big league roster uh, with enough talent to carry them to a World Series. And if it's not guys who eventually reach the major leagues with the Orioles, it's guys that are going to be able to go out and get literally whoever they want. Like Michael Isa said that himself. We can go trade for just about anybody we want at the major league level. So I mean, it's terms of building up talent to get to that point as well. Um, and I, I think that with Adley and Gunner and Kyle Bradish and even Dean Kramer's reversal of fortune last year, like there are a lot of great stories from young guys who this organization has developed um, or at least, you know, helped finish developing in like Dean Kramer's case. But um, yeah, I, I feel extremely confident more so than before about the direction of this organization. Yeah, I think you both hit the nail on the head. Where I would build off of that, and I think the biggest thing that I learned about the Orioles this year is that it is possible for them to be one of those organizations that can refine and improve on players that have major league experience at the major league level. Now, I, I generally don't like making direct comparisons between the Orioles and the Astros, just for various reasons, one of them being that we really don't know exactly how Mike Elias is going to run this organization compared to how Jeff Lunau ran the Astros when he was there. And certainly there's a lot of things we don't want Elias copying from Jeff Lunau. Um, but one thing that we know that the Astros did really well leading up to their World Series in 20, title in 2017 and what they have continued to do well is take players who were good, okay elsewhere, but maybe never quite hit their ceilings and figure out what adjustments they can make to make them even better. A, a guy like Colin McHugh comes to mind as someone that the Astros did this with. And with the Orioles this year, we saw it with CNL Perez, Austin Voth, who was a guy that I was high on years ago in the national system and had showed glimpses of it in 2019, but then had been bad since then. He gets back on track with the Orioles. Dean Kramer, who Nick Benson, a huge turnaround from what he did last year. What Jorge Mateo did with his defense when there were doubts about Mateo as a shortstop when he was coming up through the minor leagues. Um, you know, so you can look down that list and see the Orioles got a lot out of guys that other organizations just couldn't quite figure out what to do with. So that gives me a lot of hope for the future that, you know, these small moves that maybe a lot of fans don't pay attention to or don't like at the time. Some of them are going to pay off, and they're going to pay off in a big way. Hope so. Uh, next question is, uh, the what was the worst take on the O's in 2022? Let's start with Bob. Uh, one of our favorites. Um, <laughs> not as much to choose from, I feel like, in uh, 2022 mm -hmm. as 2021. You know, 
exceeding expectations tends to do that. But for me, I will single out one person in particular, but there are a lot of people that had this same terrible take. And the person I'm singling out is ESPN's Bradford Doolittle, who this is around the trade deadline when the Orioles traded Trey Mancini and Jorge Lopez. I'm not, I am a subscriber of ESPN plus, but it's way too hard to get into their articles. It's, it's a mess the way they set that up. So I don't have an exact quote, but I know he was very, very harsh on those trades. And a lot of people, I'll even call out Connor Newcomb by name. He did not like these trades, but to me, I don't see how you, how you could not. I mean, you traded a guy in Trey Mancini who played terrible the rest of the year. Unfortunately for him, he got his ring, so that's good. He's still unsigned as a free agent, and Jorge Lopez very quickly receded and did not perform as well for the Twins. But we got guys like Cade Povich, Seth Johnson, Chase McDermott, and Juan Nunez, Juan Rojas, uh, Yanir Cano. I feel like, you know, the Orioles did not really miss out on those guys. They very easily could have, even if those guys would have performed as well. They had all year to that point. I feel like this would have been a win. I just feel like the Orioles got at least three or four top 20, 30 prospects. So I love those trades and a lot of people hated them. And a lot of one person in particular made some very, <laughs> Uh, obnoxious comments about the trade as well, Mr. Sean Doolittle. So I had Bradford Doolittle's article right here on the Jorge Lopez trade. I was going to single it out as the worst take on the Orioles this year. And I'm going to just quote directly from the piece. Anyway, from a value standpoint, I'd rather bet on Lopez outproducing any of these four prospects, any one of these four prospects over the next three seasons, but it'd be hard-pressed to outproduce the aggregate of the quartet over the duration of all those controllable seasons. Yippee. Yippee. <laughs> now, what bothered me about this article in particular is that at this point, Kate Povich is in the middle of a breakout season. And at no point in Bradford Doolittle's article does he mention anything beyond what Kylie McDaniel wrote in his preseason projection. And what McDaniel wrote was pretty accurate. Povitz is a projectable 6'3 left-hander, um, fastball spike with room to add at least another 25 to 30 pounds. Then he cherry-picks the 4.46 ERA without mentioning the strikeout rate that he had been putting up at Cedar Rapids because um, it didn't take much after that trade to just pull up Cade Povitz's baseball reference page or his MILB.com player page and realize, oh, there's a – left-handed pitcher pitching his first full season in the minor leagues as a starter at high A, striking a lot of guys out. And the preseason reports on him coming in for, you know, leading up to this year were pretty positive. And then I, I will just throw this out there, and this is why I think going forward, a cautionary tale when these kind of trades are made for everyone, ourselves included. If Jorge Lopez and I, I like Jorge Lopez, and I, I like what he did for the Orioles this season um, in particular. But if Jorge Lopez had continued on the trajectory that he was on, on before the trade and had pitched the way that he did for the Twins after the fact, the Orioles' bullpen would have been worse over the last two months of the season. There, there's no question about that. So it's just something to consider going forward. Yippee. Feel like feel like Zach saves these articles throughout the year for this question specifically. He's waiting for it. Uh, 
Yeah, mine mine was player specific. A running joke on this show. We're gonna run it back one more time. Uh, the the coldest take last year on this Orioles, or more specifically on the farm system, was a uh, we have a Colton Cowser problem. That that was for me. That was the the coldest take, and I'll just I'll just leave it at that. That is a great call. <laughs> one of these days, we're gonna pick one of our own takes in this category, and that'll be fun. Yeah, we've I've said some pretty stupid things, I'm sure, <laughs> oh, as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's it's fun to to pick around a little bit here at the end of the year. Yeah, we do have a Colton Cowser problem though. Where are we gonna play him when uh <laughs> he's forcing his way onto the major leagues and we have a great outfield already? So we'll figure that out when the time comes. That's probably mm -hmm. me again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's go in bold prediction territory let's get ourselves on the worst take uh pattern here and what is your bold boldest prospect prediction going into 2023 start with nick i teased this on last week's show even though we just recorded that like 30 minutes ago um time is confusing now whenever we do this but my super bold this is super bold now prospect prediction for next year is Reed Trimble in 2023 as a top 10 prospect in the system? I know I didn't name him as my, one of my top 10s when we just answered that question. but uh, So that tells you my confidence level here, I guess, in that prediction. But I think that there is an outside chance of that happening. He Just 22 games is all he played in after being drafted at a Southern Miss in 2021. I don't know if we ever figured out why, but I don't think it was an injury not exactly sure what happened if we ever found out. So like, don't want to spread anything false there or anything that we don't know, but he didn't play very much at all. And then he has major shoulder surgery. Slow down and say that one before you say it out loud. And last December. And I didn't think he was going to play at all in 2022, but he came back much quicker than I think I expected. He needed some time to settle in. And he did the month of August. He hit 319 with an 812 OPS, got more reps in the Arizona fall league. I think he enters 2023 fully healthy, ready to go in his first full season of pro ball. And if you learned anything from Joey Ortiz in 2022, it takes time to come back from that kind of surgery. And so I, I'm buying all of the Reed Trimble stock in 2023, and I'm going to plant that flag pretty firmly right here early on. I'm going to um, go ahead and say that Dylan Beavers will be a three-level prospect next year, Aberdeen, Bowie, Delmarva. And, that's not – I don't know that that's actually that bold, but I just feel like that the Orioles already started to bring out – like really started to get Dylan Beavers into another year last season. And with that little bit of time that he had, you could see some improvements. And I think that that's going to carry over into next year, and I could see him on a Colton Cowser-type path where he'll start off at Aberdeen, he'll go to Bowie, and he'll just go off there and he'll end the year at AAA. I could definitely see him and or Judd Fabian pulling that feet off. Um, I will go with 2023 is the year that, not us, because we already know this, but uh, everyone else out there in Orioles Twitter land and in hashtag Birdland and Dan Conley especially <laughs> will learn that the cupboard is full. And yes, it would not be a year in review podcast without a shot at Dan Conley. So there it is. Uh, the cupboard is actually going to be full 
with the likes of Drew Rahm, Ryan Watson, Chris Valmont, Justin Armbruster, Cade Provich, Noah DeNoyer, Chase McDermott, Gene Pinto, Carlos Tavera, Peter Van Loon, Davy Cruz, Trace Bright, Juan De Los Santos, Carter Baumler, Juan Rojas, Reese Sharp, well, maybe not Reese Sharp, Alfred Vega, Zach Showalter, et cetera, et cetera. At least five, six of these guys are going to have big breakout years. And just you're going to see that the Orioles player development, pitching development, you don't need to draft high name value guys. You can get good pitchers through international means, through trades, through just development, get guys. They know what they like. They know how to improve them. And I think that's going to continue. And people are going to stop talking about the lack of pitching in the Orioles minor leagues. I don't know how I didn't go Dan Connolly for the worst take. I can't remember what he said. We even tweeted a meme telling him to shut up at one point, I think, during the year. I can't remember what that was in response to. Yeah, I, blo- I like, blocked it all out. We have to name the category <laughs> over him. It's, it's just there's too many. There's too many. So um, favorite moment on the podcast in 2022. There's a lot of ways we could go with this. And I want to see where Nick uh, leads off this conversation. I mean, it's this easy one. Favorite moment was, I mean, it's Mike Elias for our 100th episode. I mean, it's, I didn't sleep. I don't think I slept the night before. I was so nervous that something bad was going to happen and it was going to ruin everything. But like, I just think we put a lot of work into this. We're constantly watching and learning and having discussions with people and just, you know, running the social media accounts to educate Orioles fans. And it's really cool to get it honestly honestly feels like a second full-time job when baseball season starts. But it's cool when we get people like Mike Elias, Kobe Perez, Matt Blood, these Orioles front office members on the show. I think it's it's validation of what we do. Like we're not here for the hot takes, the clickbait headlines or just spit nonsense. I think we take this very seriously while having fun at the same time. And it's cool to see those in the organization recognize that. And honestly, the other thing for me was the live show we did at Full Tilt. That was amazing. Shout out to Dan at Full Tilt. That was a fun night. I'm sad I had no longer have Full Tilt beer at my house. And I think all the time about driving the three hours to go get some. That's completely unpaid sponsorship there. Go to Full Tilt. Dan makes fantastic beer. But like when we're there and we're doing our show, and shout out to John Mioli, shout out to Connor Newcomb for coming through as well. But when a large group from the Orioles organization walks through that door and spends night hanging out with us, talking baseball with us. That was one of that didn't happen on air specifically, but that was probably one of the the coolest moments since we started the show. Yeah, really just as soon as January of 2022, my expectations were already blown out of the water when we got Kirby Perez to come on here and talk about the latest international signing period. And I just feel like time after time all year long, like, we hit milestone after milestone. 100 patrons had Michael Elias on for episode 100. Matt Blood came on again. We've talked to players and people in the industry that I never thought we'd be able to talk to. And it's been amazing. This is the greatest. Uh, but yeah, I do also have to go with that, that live show and not necessarily just the content of the live show, just the experience. And I didn't see those guys from the organization walk in. So I didn't realize until after the podcast was over that that happened. But just my favorite part of this entire year, maybe not even just with the podcast in general, but with maybe, well, I can't say that because of recent developments. But in life, it was one of the best moments was just hanging out with Matt Blood and a couple other guys in the organization and just talking for like, I don't know how long it was, maybe 20, 30 minutes. But that was just like so cool. And and uh, I want more moments like that. 
2023. So hopefully we can make that happen. But that was the peak of a, a great year for the podcast for me. Yeah, and those are all great choices. You know, having Michael Elias on, Kobe Perez, Matt Blood, having, you know, continued contributions from people like John Mioli, Connor Nuke, Merrick Garfield, uh, you know, the regular guests we've had on, Stephen Loftus right before he left Baltimore Sports and Life. Um, you know, just those kind of things were really meaningful. But the live show at Full Tilt, just I, I don't think it could have gone any better. And thanks to Dan and his staff again for pulling that off. Um, and hopefully it's hopefully that is not only the first of many live shows, but the first of many live shows at that venue. Yeah, Dan, where's where's our beer? We gotta we gotta bring that back up. The the hoppy fastball on the verge beer at full tilt. Um I I'm just saying if it happens, y'all gonna have to beat me to it because I'm about to buy them out if we get our own beer. Yeah, I know it's the off season, but like yeah, the Orioles are pretty quiet this off season. Full tilt's been very quiet this offseason when it comes to on the verge. No. <laughs> Looking forward to many interactions and 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 working together with them in the future. So keep an eye out. All right. Speaking of interviews, uh, which of those fun interviews that we've had? We've had many on the show last year, but what interview did you learn the most from in 2022? I'll start with Zach on this one. I think it was a Kobe Perez interview. And one of the things I've learned when we've had our Actually, no, let me backtrack there. It was a Kobe Perez interview and the Brad Selick interview. So I want to acknowledge Brad Selick and that group as well as Matt Blood, Michael Elias, and Kobe Perez. There were a lot of things about the draft that I thought I knew about the Orioles, and I learned so much listening to him. And with Kobe Perez, that was interview to me is a perfect example of you really got to pay attention when you listen to a member of the Orioles front office, particularly on the scouting or player development side, Name check a player unprompted. We talk a lot about how things don't leak out of this front office, which is true. But when Matt Blood, you know, I remember the first time we had Matt Blood on, he name checked Miss A.L. Dayson. Um, at that point, Dayson was sort of on our radar, but not that much. Last year, you know, Kobe Perez name checked Frederick Ben Cosme. So I think back on that interview, and it's like we were focused a lot on the big names, as we should have been. But he brought up a lot of guys who ended up having really good seasons and now you know are in the conversation of the top 30 prospects in the system that we weren't necessarily thinking about that way uh, before he was on, and I think even in the months after he was on. Yeah, these guys, they don't bring up names, at least consistently by accident. Like These are the guys that are on the tip of their tongue because they realize the improvements they're making in the progress and, and stuff like that. So... Yeah, basically, I, I learned so much from every single interview we've had on the show, period, let alone just this year. But maybe this is more just going into one of my favorite interviews, but it was when we had Sam Jelinek on a couple times to talk about Delmarva and just the stories about how these guys, these kids need to learn how to play in the cold and get their own groceries and, and all that kind of stuff. That just that made my day when we had him on. That was like so cool to just really understand what these players are adjusting to learning to and really putting in perspective, how young they are to have to be professionals and on this daily grind in a tough atmosphere coming from, you know, almost nothing in a lot of cases. And, and this is the, the fight for their professional dreams and yeah, all that stuff with Sam Jelinek was learned a lot in a different way, but it was cool. Yeah, the, that interview with Sam, especially the second one, was unbelievable. I could sit there. I 
pretty sure I told him he needs his own podcast to just talk about the stories from that season. And I would listen 100%. Under, you talk about underrated guys down there in Delmarva and underrated broadcasters. Sam Jelinek, uh, you listen to a Delmarva broadcast, the amount of information you learn on a nightly basis is unmatched. Uh, and the Orioles, you know, have three uh, very good announcing crews. Could have more, but uh, we have three good announcing crews in this organization. But Sam is just what he does on there. Delmarva is fantastic. For me personally, I thought it was the Brad Selick interview. I, I wasn't there for that one, unfortunately, but that was my, the interview I learned the most from. I thought you guys did an amazing job there. I hope we get him back on again this year to talk about the draft or just just anything. But he explained pretty much exactly what this organization looks for in guys, especially pitchers. And it was really eye-opening. And I thought he was very real and honest with his answers. It was refreshing to listen to a lot of these guys that don't give like the cookie cutter PR answers. Uh, and I felt, you know, Brad was very open in his answers and honest in his answers. And so it was, it was really cool to sit back and, and listen to someone as bright as he is. I think hopefully he's with this organization for a very long time, but I, I think Brad's too, is going to be a name down the road that if you haven't already heard of it, you will in turn outside of Baltimore many years from now, he's got a, a very long, very bright future helping probably many teams across major league baseball by the time it's all said and done. The most wanted guest for 2023. Um, and this is a quick recap. Last year, Nick said Kobe Perez and Kobe Mayo. We got both of them on the show. I said Jordan Westbrook, who we not have on, although I'd love to have him more in the future. Bob had Michael Eyes and Brad Selick. So now, who's your most wanted guest for 2023? I will start with Nick. Uh, I think it's definitely Eve Rosenbaum. Like before she becomes the next rising GM star in baseball. Uh, but she would definitely be like top. Although last year we were saying Michael Elias is like the dream. I think Eve Rosenbaum is definitely the dream interview. But honestly, I think the conversation I would really love to have is with Catherine Rowe. I, I believe she's still with the organization next year, hopefully. But the mental skills coach, I think baseball is extremely hard. In no other sport, like, do you have to prove yourself across four or five different levels before you become a big leaguer? And you, on a nightly basis, you fail more than you succeed. And the travel sucks and the accommodations aren't, they're improving, but they're not great, right? You, The health and nutrition, you got to stay on top of that all, all the time, while at the same time, you know, the financial resources or lack of financial resources for a lot of these guys and you've always has that you always have that guy behind you fighting for your job. Kobe Mayo talked about that the other week in his interview with us. He's always got someone right on his tail willing to take his job. Even though they're on the same team, it's a battle. And I just think the mental side of the game is just as important, if not more important, than everything else. And so because of that, I would love to talk with Catherine Rowe and and pick her brain about you know what she does with this organization and the mental side of baseball. Uh, we also talked to Matt Borkshalte before we forget, which was a, a fun interview as well, major league hitting coach. But so many guys, we've talked to so many people, guys and girls. I'd like to talk to so many more coming up, like coaches. There's Josh Conway, Brandon Becker, Roberto Mercado, Forrest Herman. Uh, just the list goes on and on as far as Zach goes. And but yeah, it's Eve Rosenbaum is is number one on my list as well. I just think and Sig Meidel, we haven't talked to him yet. That would be super fun. But Eve is like, she's a quote machine. Anytime I've listened to or, or read an interview with her, she's said something that's really just caught my attention. So I I she I agree with Nick. She's going to be a superstar in this industry before long, and I'd love to get get a chance to talk to her before that happens, or even after whatever. 
Yeah, I think that Eve Rosenbaum and Catherine Rowe are both, uh, you know, guests that we're absolutely going to try to have on next year if we can. And they're both really high on my list as far as people I really want to talk to and get a, an understanding, like kind of get their perspective on things that are going on in the organization. So I would say that they are two that would be high on my list. And I'd also really be curious to start hearing from more of these kind of breakout pitching prospects that maybe aren't getting the attention we, you know, that they deserve. I thought Justin Armbruster was a great guest when we had him on a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, to be able to talk to a guy like Noah DeNoyer um, or Ryan Watson and to kind of get insight from them, I think would be great. And in that vein too, I should note Drew Rahm, maybe one of the MVP guests of 2022, the first player to sit here, for an entire hour. And Justin Ramsey right behind him followed yeah, that Justin up. Ramsey, and he's yeah. a great, I mean, look, we are lucky to do what we do. <laughs> That's all I could say. I mean, yeah. And even in just the past month, we talked to Kobe Mayo, Daryl Hernandez, and Justin Armbruster. Whoever would have thought this would be my life. And I guess we will end it with this last prompt of our own before we get into a couple of listener questions. But Looking ahead now, as New Year's is a couple weeks away, what are some New Year's resolutions we have for the podcast going into 2023? Let's start with Zach. I think that my ultimate resolution is I really want to hear, continue to do what I think we did a, a good job of this year and really hearing from more people experiencing firsthand what a minor league season is like on a day-to-day basis. And that's you know, obviously talking to players and coaches, then being able to have people like Sam Jelinek on who just give you so much insight. Um, I think that that takes us so to another level to be able to say to be able to show to our listeners, okay, this is what goes on in these players' lives. This is what their whole daily routine is like. This is what you, you know, not to fall back on a baseball cliche here, but this is what doesn't show up in the box score. And I think that kind of insight is really valuable not just in terms of what we can give to our listeners, but to make us better at doing this. Yeah. I don't know how this is really going to be possible, but I just want more content out there on a daily basis. Like I want to absolutely flood the feeds with everything we've got, but like continuing along that same line is continuing to put all this into context. Like, yes, these numbers aren't that great, but here's what he's doing. Right. Right. Um, yeah, just kind of I had to figure out how we're going to put out even more content while trying to, on my end, raise two toddlers. But I'm going to figure it out. And 2023 is double the social media followers. Uh, hopefully Twitter's still around and we don't have to worry about that because I don't know how to pivot to Instagram. I don't know how to work Hi. that. But <laughs> I don't I gonna have to learn some other stuff, hopefully. But uh, hopefully not. But uh, yeah, I just I want to flood the market with as much content as possible and truly be like, all right, I, I need to know about this guy. I need to know something about the Oris minor league system. And everyone's first thought is on the verge. Yeah, I like that mm-hmm. a lot. But uh, real quick, I think it's underrated. I think we had we are a weekly podcast that did not miss a single week this entire year. And that will continue now since we've already pre-recording it a week ahead of time. Um, you know, maybe not all three of us on every single one, but we put out an episode every week and a good one at that, if I do say so myself. But uh, <laughs> my rev- my resolutions would be you know, I've already got a plane ticket and hotel for spring training, my first one ever in February. So one, I want to have a presence at spring training, get as much content out of that as possible. 
I want to do more live shows. I want to do more events when we're getting together with patrons and and Orioles fans in general, and just continue to get people aware of what we're doing and hopefully get, build this uh, patron community as much as possible because I love it. I love everyone that is a patron of ours, and I think our WhatsApp group is like as much as it annoys my wife and like dominates my phone, I wouldn't have it any other way. So let's get up to 150 patrons this year and, and continue to grow that. And uh, yeah, I just basically, I just want to continue to do what we're doing. It's working out pretty well. Absolutely. We are going to take some questions from our listeners, but first the wait is over. DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top rated sportsbook apps is officially live in Maryland. Now you can legally bet on all your favorite sports with DraftKings anytime and anywhere right here in Maryland. For a limited time, new customers who sign up with promo code on the verge will receive $200 in free bets instantly. Why not roll the dice on the Baltimore Orioles in 2023? Use one of your free bets on the Orioles to win the 2023 World Series and turn a $50 free bet into $1,800. DraftKings is the best features, including same-game parlays, unlimited player props, and more with fast and easy payouts right at your fingertips. DraftKings Sportsbook is where I go for all my sports betting needs. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code on the birds to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on anything only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code on the birds. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Must be 21 years of older, physically present in Maryland. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus issued as free bets. See DraftKings.com slash MD for full terms and conditions. And we'll go now to our listener questions from the show. We got some pretty good ones ahead of time from our patrons. And we'll start with Vivek, um, certainly one of our more valuable guests that we've had on here a few times and a, a very loyal and insightful member of our Patreon community. Given fans' expectations versus the current offseason acquisitions, what does it say about the organization and how they view their external candidates and those internal? And I think this is a bit of a follow-up question from Vivek, so I'll tap it, uh, tack it on here. Is Eliason Group looking for more internal player developments to reach the top before committing more. And I'll start with Bob on this one. Yeah, it's interesting how much of the lack of a splurge in free agency, a splash, how much of that is, you know, outside of a guy like Michael Elias's control with maybe some ownership questions. I don't know what's going on there, if there's anything even there. And how much is just this is how he wants to build his his organization that he's taken under his wing and, and got to this point. I mean, do he, does he not want to be the Detroit Tigers of 2023 where it's like, oh, they're breaking out, you make some big signings, they backfire, and you kind of revert while you have guys in the system that could be as good or better than guys you could sign for big money and they're coming up and sucks for them, but they're cheap when they're young and first coming into the league. Um, you know, this is a deep farm system. You don't know who's going to hit and who's going to bust until it's right at that major league level. So why not hold a little bit steady for one more year, give them a chance to to break out or prove that they're not the answer. And yeah, <laughs> it's a tough question to answer, but I think we will find out before spring training gets underway how much he's leaning onto the prospects and how much he's just 
you know, doing that Braveheart thing where it's like, hold, hold, okay, fire, when no one's expecting it. Uh, so we will see. I think it's a good question, but it's a tough one to answer. Yeah, the second part of that question yeah, are, is Elias looking for more internal player development streets to the top before committing more. I would probably say yes, just because you don't want to empty this farm system right now. Yes, you can make trades for major league prospects for major league talent right now and and still retain a, you know, a top 10 farm system in baseball. But at the same time, like we're just now seeing like full international classes. Um, and so I, I'm just, I imagine they're hesitant to completely go full AJ Preller at this moment. Maybe down the road, it, it happens a little bit, uh, maybe not full AJ Preller. Cause I don't really know what the Padres have, but the Padres always tend to find some group of prospects to trade for whoever they want. But, um, you know, as far as like expectations, what does it say about the organization, external candidates, internal candidates, it is tough. Cause we don't know like what the Orioles are offering free agents this offseason. We don't know. It, it could be a matter of they misjudged the market and you know they didn't expect some of these guys to get the, the high dollar amount that we're getting. And we don't know what financial constraints Mike Elias is operating under. I think we all assume, have assumptions about that, but we just don't know to like fully answer that question. So I think maybe it is some sort of combination of the Orioles are major players. I don't think you hear, what's his name? mega agent over there make the comments that he does about the Orioles <laughs> like I don't think you hear him make those comments just out of the blue like why would you need to say that about the Orioles uh, unless it's true so I think it is true I think this team is this front office is a group of vultures ready to attack it's just the market's not playing right with them maybe there are some internal constraints holding them back and this just wasn't the, the greatest year and also this or front office wasn't expected to go all in this offseason. They weren't expecting to win 83 wins, gather 83 wins last season. So maybe it's just a combination of all of that. But that's why I think come the trade deadline, you start to see bigger moves. Next offseason, I think this team goes like you can talk about liftoff. I, I muted the word on Twitter because I didn't want to see any more tweets about liftoff, but I'm going to bring it back here. Maybe that is the point where you see true liftoff, right? But at the moment, like right now, it's I think there are a lot of factors just playing into it. And it's just an unfortunate combustion of all of these factors at one time that's not very favorable to fans. And it's unfortunate, but I'm still holding out steady and, and waiting for all this to come to fruition, which I think is going to happen very, very soon. And by the time we record this, who knows? Max Fried could be in a world by the time we record this. We have no idea. We'll have to see. You need combustion for liftoff. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I think it's possible that what is true now is not going to be true six months from now um, if the Orioles are contending. They might be very aggressive at the trade deadline and make a move, or they might be really aggressive next offseason. I think that it would be fair to say that maybe this organization feels like it could take – it can build off of what Kyle Bradis and Dean Kramer did last year. and feel like they're getting production that is good enough that they don't have to give James to tie on what the Cubs gave him to come pitch there. I, I think that that would be fair to say. And I think that, you know, it would also be fair to say that, you know, the market just has moved fast and probably too fast for a team that's in the position the Orioles are in, which is you're a year ahead of schedule in a lot of ways. 
and you have a free agent market where you have the Mets as players. You have the Yankees realizing that if they don't hold on to Aaron Judds and add something to go with him, they're not going to be very good next year. Um, so all of those factors kind of coming into play has made this a really competitive offseason and one that I don't think the Orioles fit into for top-tier free agents. So for the here and now, yeah, I think that they are probably looking at those internal options to see who can we make better, who can we you know continue to develop, who could we trade to maybe round out the roster. And then if on Memorial Day the Orioles are, you know, in a wild card spot, and they can sustain that up to the All Star break. I fully expect them to be buyers at the deadline, uh, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, here's a question from Alex. I think it's kind of fun to look back, although I don't know if I have a straightforward answer to it. Which is, if you could redraft any of the first three or four picks of the Elias draft, what would you change? And I'll start with Nick. Mm, I mean, it's very easy just to go back and look at, do like draft revisionist history type stuff, knowing what we know now. But honestly, like looking back, I just talked to earlier about the 2019 draft class, or maybe it was last episode. 2019 draft class had Adley Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson, Kyle Stowers, Zach Watson, Joey Ortiz, Dale Hernandez as the first group of picks. Maverick Hanley was right after him. You have to go to the seventh round before you saw Johnny Reiser, who just retired, unfortunately, due to injuries. But of that group, like who has underperformed? Who do you look at and say, first of all, who's not a top 30 prospect of that group? I mean, Zach Watson. And I think if I remember correctly, going back and looking at the third round here, the Atlanta Braves did draft Michael Harris, who won NL Rookie of the Year, right? Uh, just this past year. He was drafted after Zach Watson. So, yeah, it's easy to say, like, you should have drafted Michael Harris. But he's a high school kid. Zach Watson was an SEC bat. Pretty consistent, uh, consistently good hitter in the SEC. Guy who plays a good center field. Like I, I don't see how you pass that one up. And looking at the other drafts, I think it's way too early to talk about twenty two, even twenty twenty one. But twenty twenty draft, you had places like uh, Eric Longhagen at Fangraph said the Orioles walked away in that draft with six picks, all of whom were legitimate future major leaguers. Could be legitimate future major leaguers. No other team he felt like had that kind of draft. Now you look back at it, yeah, Carter Balmer's got the injury stuff. Anthony Servideo hasn't been great, uh, unfortunately, due to injuries. But again, he was an elite defender with a lot of people thought the adjustments he was making with the bat at Ole Miss and the pandemic short in 2020 season were legitimate. So, yeah, of course, grabbing a guy like Servideo in the third round is a no-brainer. So, yeah, I honestly, even looking back, I don't think I would – change anything i think they made the right picks at there and just unfortunately injuries have derailed some of these these early picks but not many still there you fantastic response there is i can't really argue with anything <laughs> that you said but i will say that i would change one pick and that is from 2022 nolan mclean he didn't sign so let's <laughs> let's draft someone that will <laughs> uh yeah that's the only thing i can add on top of what you already said that was very well. Very well noted. Yeah, I agree with both of you. And I'm going to actually take the opportunity with this question. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be easy in you know two or three years to look back and see where the Orioles maybe could have done a little bit better. And it's possible that 
it's actually going to fall beyond those first three or four picks. Maybe we're going to find the mid rounds. There were some decisions that could have been made that weren't. Um, but I just want to throw this out there, which is that I think with the way the 2020 draft class has worked out so far that going under slot with the top pick to get more value out of the later rounds is going to be the correct decision. Um, for a lot of reasons, that draft was really unconventional. And I think we've seen a lot of players rust so far, Spencer Torkelson kind of being the poster child for that um, right now. But I don't know that the top of that draft class is as good as we thought it was then. And it may turn out that going under slot and trying to get value later on with guys like Kobe Mayo, Hudson Haskin, if Carter Ballmer can stay healthy, that's a guy you went over slot for. You signed Jordan Westberg. I think they got him at slot money after going on under slot for Kerstad. So I do think that's going to be the correct decision with this draft class. Whether or not Heston Kerstad is necessarily going to be the correct pick remains to be seen, but I think that that strategy so far is looking like it's going to be the correct one. Yeah, I mean, looking at that draft class, who's behind him? Like, yeah, what it would have been cool to see what this organization could do with a Max Meyer, Asa Lacey. I know we all wanted Austin Martin, and I think he's kind of you know off the bandwagon a little bit. Nick Gonzalez, Emerson Hancock, Zach Veen, the guy I think we always make fake trades for uh, because he's a Rocky. Like, there are a lot of interesting names, but yeah, that 2020 class, if you don't get Kershide, who could very still very well be a, a prominent major leaguer or at least a really, really good trade piece showing that he's healthy, that AFL campaign, you don't get Kobe Mayo in the system who, like, Bob just predicted next year being his number two prospect, like, because there's reasons for that. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, you don't get Carter Baumler, who unfortunately, like I just mentioned, the injuries derailed his career. Carter Baumler legitimately one of the highest ceilings in this entire organization. So, yeah, I, I have no qualms about any of these drafts so far. And we'll wrap up here with this question from Tim. I think it's fitting given the, given the tone of this show. What was your favorite moment from 2022? One from the major league team and one from the minors. I'll start with Bob. Well, it's very similar to play, but best play of the year, which we did earlier. But I did make a point to differentiate the two. So minor leagues, it was easy for me just personally, just because the first opening weekend of the season, I went to see the Bay Sox and Jordan Westberg hit a mammoth home run that was just absolutely ridiculous. And he turned to the hit the dugout and said, let's effing go, but it wasn't effing and uh, got me pumped up for the start of minor league baseball that season. And uh, it was a very cool moment. And uh, for the majors, I had to do a top three. I couldn't just leave it at one. So number three would be Kyle Stowers game tying home run after I think it was Liam Hendricks pitching. Someone drops a, uh, Andrew Vaughn potentially uh, drops a foul ball. that would have been the last out of the game. And what do you know? Next thing you know, he hits his first major league home run to tie it up. Orioles go on to win that game. Number two would be Adley's debut, just standing behind the plate and soaking it all in before the game started uh, in his catcher's gear. And number one, what was that? <laughs> number one was Gunnar Henderson's home run in his major league debut. Just ridiculous stuff. And uh, Nick noted Jim Palmer's chuckle and just the ridiculous nature of, of course, that happened, the helmet falling off, the the pictures that were taken that are all over articles now about Gunnar Henderson and 
yeah, that was that was it for me. I was in Aberdeen watching the Ironbirds with the Orioles game on my phone, and that was way more exciting watching on my phone than anything that was in front of me, even though there was some good stuff there too. Yeah, the major league side of things, it was definitely the Adley moment when he you know, circles around and soaks it all in. I know a lot of people have said this before because it's true. Like, It's not very often you can look at a, a franchise or any organization in sports and say, that was the moment everything changed. But I honestly believe that was the moment like everything changed. And I could still go back and watch it right now just thinking about it. It's like I get shivers down my spine because he understands what is happening in that moment. Uh, and and you don't see that a lot with, with athletes. I love it. That's going to be a moment that lives forever. Uh, I don't care. I don't know what an NFT is, but I would buy that as an NFT if that's still a thing. Um, but on the minor league side of things, honestly, it was a game. Grace, I'm going back to Grayson Rodriguez, a man who I feel like we haven't talked about in months. But Grayson Rodriguez, to pull up the game log here, it was May 27th against Gwinnett. He pitched seven innings, gave up no runs on two hits, no walks, 10 strikeouts. And I thought that was it. This guy just told all of baseball that he is the, without a doubt, the top pitching prospect in all of baseball. And he's taken that talent to Camden Yards immediately. Unfortunately, a couple of days later is when he gets hurt. And with two outs in the fifth inning, two outs in the sixth inning of what was without a doubt going to be his last start in AAA, he gets hurt misses the next three months, but that one start striking out 10 across seven scoreless. He went the distance. He went seven full innings. And finally he answered all those questions about why won't Grayson go more than four innings? Why won't Grayson go more than five innings? He went seven scoreless with 10 strikeouts at triple a level. I thought that was it. And that was the moment where it's like, this guy's legit. This guy is going to lead this rotation uh, in a couple of years. Yeah, I think the Adley moment at the major league level is the correct pick. Um, that or Gunnar Henderson's home run in his debut were just two moments that really stood out. I will say that one just in person that I saw um, at Canham Yards this year was the first time I saw Felix Batista pitch after they put in that intro of Michael K. Williams whistling as Omar in the wire and the lights going off. It's not like there hasn't been a pitcher on the Orioles that fans have been this excited about in years. There hasn't been a reason to get excited about a pitcher like this in a long time. And yet I'm there on a night and I don't, it was not a particularly crowded game. People started cheering the second the lights dimmed. They knew it was coming. This intro had just started. And that was one that I would say was really just fun to see in person. And then my favorite moment in um, the minor leagues was actually June 8th, um, Norfolk at Nashville, Gunnar Henderson homering his first at bat at AAA. Um, because, you know, he we knew how good he had been at Bowie. I think we all knew that he, number one, deserved to be at Norfolk and had a feeling that he was going to be successful there. Yet this one lingering question that kept coming up was that he had like a bad OPS against lefties or something at Bowie. So what does he do? In his first at bat, he hits a home run off of a lefty, Ethan Small, who's actually one of the Brewers' top prospects. So he takes a guy who actually is a name in his organization, a left-handed pitcher, deep in his first at bat at AAA. And I remember watching that game on MILB TV and thinking, yeah, he's ready for this moment. He's ready 
to be at this level. He's ready to go up against older pitchers and, you know, carry Norfolk the way he was carrying Bowie um, earlier this year. And the breakout is for real. Yeah, I remember that moment too. That Gunnar Henderson is just a guy who just seems to rise to the occasion every single time. I feel like he hit a home run in his first game or maybe at bat in Delmarva the year before that. Like, he just is a guy that's going to give Orioles fans chills in many ways, I feel like, for the next five, six years at least. So, Bob, Nick, before we head into the stretch run here on this episode, anything you want to say to the listeners as we wrap up 2022? Get ready for 2023. I think it's going to be even more fun. Like, we're, I, I'll never forget someone commented as the Orioles were winning uh going to stretch of a nice winning streak there at some point later in the year Adley was up I don't know if Gunner is up yet or not but you know we're still tweeting out minor league highlights and shouting out those guys and someone commented on who it was he got blocked um <laughs> but about hey the Orioles are on you should try watching uh and I was like hum well this is what we do like this is this is our niche this is our role and we do it very well and I'm sticking to this and he responded something like, oh, I thought this was just some like stick you guys did until the Orioles were good. Like, no, uh, we're not going anywhere. I don't care if this team wins 10 World Series in a row. I still want to be here talking about the Orioles minor leagues. Uh, and 2023 is going to be a year three, year four for us. Um, it's crazy to see how much we've grown. And I'm excited to see how much we grow next season. And it's all thanks to the many, many people who listen every single week. Yeah, just thank you to anyone that's listened, even if it's just to give us a chance when the, the Orioles were still bad and you stuck around. And hopefully, you know, as as this goes on, the Major League team is going to be a bunch of guys who we grew up with, basically. And and yeah, I dealt with something similar with uh, with people that are like, who cares about the minor leagues? Well, we do. And that's why we do this. Like we, quote unquote, broke news that there was going to be a promotion Daryl Hernandez up to double A I think it was and someone didn't like that we tease a breaking news like breaking news that's going to be something important like uh Gunnar Henderson to the majors well we consider all the stuff that we cover every level of the system to be important and it's what we do so I mean get on board because 2023 you're going to see more of it yeah absolutely and Thank you. A lot of people deserve thanks. Thanks to all of the guests that came on this year. Um, you know, so from our longtime guests that have come on the show repeatedly over the years to the ones who were maybe joining us for our, their first times and hopefully not their last. I think we certainly picked up some new favorite guests along the way in 2022. Thank you to Chris Stoner over at Baltimore Sports and Life and our BSL colleagues for the work that they do over at the site and the work not just on the articles but also the other podcasts that are part of Baltimore Sports and Life Radio, which cover Orioles, Ravens, and college sports, and sports in general. So please be sure to check those out when you get the chance. Um, and Bob, Nick, thank you for everything that you do. And to our listeners, you're the best. Thank you for listening to this show week in and week out. We're looking forward to delivering more to you in 2023, so much that you will be saying yippee. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge, and we'll see you in 2023.
That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. 